VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's sitting in the producer's chair. Let's get it going this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, every now and then, I reach out to you, the listener, to provide me some information. Yesterday was one such case. I said, you know, here goes uh, young Alex Nook to the Stanley Cup Finals. I wonder how many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have competed in the finals. And, of course, I knew for sure Cleary because he won the Cup, Danny Cleary. Michael Ryder, of course, because he won the Cup with Boston. Nook, if they win the Cup, will become the third Newfoundlander to put his name on the Stanley Cup. But also Alex Faulkner, he played with Detroit in the Stanley Cup final. Keith Brown, who we sometimes forget about as a Newfoundland or Labrador. And Keith Brown playing for Chicago one year in the Stanley Cup finals. And Darren Langdon played for Carolina when they won. He wasn't dressed in the, pardon, they didn't win that year. He wasn't dressed in the final game, but that makes it six Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who have laced it up in the Stanley Cup final. All right. You know, this is really a great story from so many angles. And this is about the Fitz's cold beer sign. So it was in the auction house and it got more attention, more clicks than any other item up for sale that night, up for auction, including some beautiful pieces of art. But I guess in many people's minds, so is this. <laughs> so uh, Chris Conway and his team at Landwash Brewery bought it. $4,300. It's already made its way to the brewery. They're going to find a home for it. To put a plaque underneath it describing why they have this particular sign. So, I mean, good on the family, number one, for taking this idea and to raise money for Cancer Care Foundation, and good on Landwash and Chris Conway for their altruism and the $4,300. In addition to it, you can't buy that kind of advertising. You know, I'm going to guess that Landwash will get more bang for their buck here than they would for any other way to spend $4,300 in the span of five days. So bravo to the family for putting the uh, Fitz's Cold Bear sign up, and way to go to the folks at Landwash Brewery. So that's going to be something to talk about when people are in the shop. Okay. And of course, I brought that up because many times people might have one watching the hockey game. And we've been talking about the, the hockey and the tennis and the Blue Jays who clobbered the Royals again last night. But if you're looking to pepper your sports intake with another sport... The Volleyball Nations League kicked off yesterday in Ottawa, one of the biggest volleyball, men's volleyball tournaments in the world. Canada, curiously ranked number 12 in the world. We've actually slipped out of the top 10 for the first while in the long while in the recent past. Last night, we took on the number 16 Germans and got bounced straight sets, even though it was 30-28 in the third. But if you're looking to just enjoy a bit of court sport action, especially if you're watching some of the NBA finals, volleyball is 100 times the sport basketball is. That'll get me in trouble. That will absolutely ruffle some feathers. So if you're so inclined, Volleyball Nations League. We just simply lo- downloaded Volleyball Television, and we can watch it there. And plus, you can watch it on the Seab and their gem app and the like. I heard they're going to have to wash those unis. This is a weird one. The washing machine, first patented by a Canadian. His name is Noah Cushing. He's from Quebec, and he patented it in 1824. And it's today for the first time in history. World Ocean Day was celebrated in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. You know, we look at opportunities, whether it be in oil and gas and forestry in the mining sector and maybe some wind farms coming to town and producing hydrogen and all the rest. 
we are well up there as a world-class location, and there's no reason we shouldn't be for world, or pardon me, for ocean sciences. So we've already got a well-established organization at SeaCor at Memorial University. Marine Institute is absolutely world-class, especially the companies coming from far and wide to use the simulators. And then you add in the ocean supercluster, the potential to be the gateway to the north for research and development. There's big opportunities with the ocean. We still know very little about the water that surrounds us. And here we are, absolutely ideal location. And we do have some organizations that are at the very top of their field. But building on that is just yet more opportunities for us. What do you think? Okay. So one of the preeminent issues facing the people of the province is, of course, in healthcare. Whether it be you're waiting for a long time on a list for a cardiac procedure or what have you. And we know these stories, and some of them end up in absolute heartbreak. The province, you know, yesterday we were told there was going to be an announcement, and there was, between Premier Fury, the dean of the Munns Med School, uh, Dr. Margaret Steele, and one of the med students. So it always stood to reason that it was going to be something surrounding the numbers of seats allocated for people from this province at the school. And that's exactly what happened. So there's going to be five more seats for Newfoundland and Labrador students. That is in addition to the 60 that's already allocated for students from here. The way I think it works is that the province of New Brunswick was funding five seats at Mons Med School to uh, keep them for students from New Brunswick. They're no longer going to do that this year, and so we are taking those seats. So the province will pay for those five additional seats. It is a good portion of the long-term solution, no doubt. But even with someone who starts in modern med school today and even comes out the other side as a family doctor, and so says the med school and the NLMA, that there's about a 65 to 75% chance that that student, that doctor, will stay in the province. But the person who takes their seat this fall, it's at least six years, if we're talking about family doctors, before they're able to set up the shop, establish a clinic, and a patient roster. So yes probably a very wise idea, but 100% only deals with some long-term implications. That's not to just criticize for criticism's sake, because I think it's probably a very good idea. But the immediacy is just so readily apparent. You hear the stories, you may have a story to tell inside your own household or your social circle of friends where someone is waiting for a procedure or has been had their procedure or diagnostic imaging or what have you postponed repeatedly. It is a massive issue. We know it to be true. I don't know if the collaborative care clinics are going to work as they're intended. They should. They should. The best practices are well understood in other places. But the trick has been, in some of the clinics they've already opened, and they just happen to be in Eastern Health at this moment in time, there's talk to expand them into Central and Western. No real understanding what it looks like in Labrador Grenfell Health, even though those four RHAs will be blended or merged into one in the short term. But the collaborative care clinic really in essence and in concept only works if it's staffed with new entrants as healthcare workers. If you had a family doctor operating his or her clinic in the city of Mount Pearl and then all of a sudden was working at the Monday Pond Road Collaborative Care Clinic, that just meant that that doctor's patient fee a roster of 3,000 patients that they couldn't bring with them in full. Now people just go to Patient Connect NL and try to get a spot at one of the care clinics. So conceptually, absolutely should be an excellent idea to whether you just need to see an LPN or an RN or a family doctor or a pharmacist or a social worker or a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist inside the one shop makes sense. But we just can't be shuffling around people, human resources, and think that we've really 
taking that extra step to expand the opportunity for one of the 125,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians without a family doctor. And family doctors just want discipline. Because we know we have concerns. There's a new cardiac surgeon coming to town. Excellent news. Dr. Sean Connors, the chief of that department, talking about he acknowledges the fact that the wait list is long and there's way too many people on it. And we've got a relationship with the uh, University of Ottawa. They've been sending on a rotational basis surgeons to the province. But, you know, I do think it's interesting that uh, Dr. Patrick Parfrey has been named a deputy minister of healthcare transition, I think it's called, or transformation, pardon me. So I'm anticipating that means that his blueprint, pardon me, the blueprint coming from Health Accord to talk about the implementation of the 57 recommendations is in the offing. So there's just a lot to, but if you want to tackle it, and I do think that's a good idea at Memorial's uh, Med School because it's obvious. If you're from here, especially if you're from a smaller community in the province and you arrive with your MD, they are obviously far more likely to return home or to the region or somewhere in the province that they call home and have family and relatives and friends already established that they would stay. So it's a positive move there, but it's not the be-all and end-all, of course. One of the things also associated with family doctors who are retiring and or moving on is access to your medical records. We've got to figure out a way where we have a boilerplate for it's one size fits all for all the clinics. Maybe that's just an oversimplification. Maybe I'm not understanding all the moving parts, but if we're transferring records for billing purposes to MCP, is there not a way for MCP to be the home, the warehouse of your medical records while you're looking for your next family doctor? As opposed to what is a pretty significant fee, let's just say you have a family of four, and your retiring family doctor may or may not give you 14 days to come collect your records, and then they send them off to a third party. There's one notable entity in Ontario. And then the clerical fee, the administrative fee, to get your own medical records back is a pretty whopping big cost. Let's see what we can do inside the NLMA and the College of Physicians and Surgeons to come up with a plan that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians can avoid that third-party cost. The establishment of digital records, your online medical files, in other parts of the country, that's how patients deal with their records. They can have them transferred along by request or on their own. So there's got to be a better way than suffering that big fee when your doctor retires or moves on to what they consider to be greener pastures. If you want to take that on, we can do it. All right, what does this say? Oh. Uh, again, I'm going to put it out there because we do know that price point is uh, changing the way we act and what we do, where we go. Whether it be the price of gas, which we'll get to in a second, but notably, and I think this is worthy of more and more discussion, the province says come September 1st when they implement the 20 cent tax on sugary drinks, and there's a list if you punch up a news story, you can get what that includes and the exemptions from the 20 cents per liter. The province does say that they anticipate $9 million annually in revenue, which kind of means that they acknowledge it may not work in full, but nothing's foolproof, nothing's 100%. People will continue on purchasing what they like because they like it. But, you know, the concept is, even if you just give it a Google and look at some research, and one of the top returns when I go through the Google machine is some reviews that have been done, particularly in the United States, Philadelphia and New York City. It just did not work as was intended. And of course, the UK model where the producers were the ones taxed if they didn't reduce their sugar content, even though simple glucose we need as a human body. It's the rationale behind why we might have sweet tooths, teeth. (laughs) 
because, you know, for brain function, for muscle function, what have you. But are you going to change your behavior there? I just wonder how that's going to actually work. I guess the proof will be in the pudding, but I'm going to put it out there for your consideration. All right, Price of Gas is doing what tomorrow? I have no idea. I don't think anybody does. You know, we've already seen a big whopping increase of some nine cents on gasoline and more on diesel just a couple of days ago. Today is generally the day, although now the interruption formula has become all the rage, has been used over and over and over again in the last few months. So I wish I could tell you where the price of gas is going. You know, and we heard from Dan McTeague, and he basically said it might be going up, it might be going down. I'm not sure how helpful that is. But again, even if we knew exactly why the PUB is doing what they're doing, it doesn't necessarily make it any easier to swallow the big bill when you go to fill up your rig. So, again, I wish I could tell you, and I heard a call that was played by Ben Murphy on the VOC Morning Show saying, but one of the callers said, why don't they tell us before they raise the price, say, for instance, if that's what's going to happen tomorrow? The PUB will push back. Remember when the embargo was kind of broken there a month or two ago and there was a big rush on the gas stations? You know, that's their pushback is that they don't want that. They don't think that's a good thing, especially for the gas station operators. If all of a sudden it's leaked out that it's going up 10 cents tomorrow and kaboom, everyone after supper in the rig and off to the gas station to top up. But anyway, where the price of gas is going, I don't know. And remember, it was not too long ago, of course, all the rage was, given all the travel restrictions, the staycation. Looks like the bookings are really solid via air travel and marine Atlantic, uh, bookings at the provincial parks, what have you, all up, all in record territory. But how many people living here are going to take the old staycation? Especially if you, say, for instance, living on the East Coast, and one of your destinations was possibly Gross Morn. It's gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. But it comes a little less attractive, doesn't it? So give us your plans. Call us and tell us about it. And again, uh, never cease to amaze me, but I'm, I am enjoying it, is for the folks out there who have a plug-in hybrid or an electric vehicle, they're not feeling the pinch like we are. And yes, everybody understands the upfront cost and life cycle from mining implications versus fossil fuels all the way to the disposal of your battery. I get it. We can take it from any angle. And the conversations have been emotional, supercharged, but it's the reality of life. And someone says, why do I promote electric vehicles? I don't. I don't have any skin in the game, nor do I have an electric vehicle. I just think it's one of those things that are happening in the world. And to not talk about it is, you know, why would we not talk about things like that? And, you know, someone says, well, if we all plugged in overnight tonight, that the grid can't handle it. There's going to be more white Dodge pickup trucks drive down Kenmount Road today than there are electric vehicles in the province. There's less than 300 is the last number I saw. So we're not talking about overwhelming the grid tonight. Plus, you're hard-pressed to get one today or in six months. So it's a bit of long-term stuff. And maybe if you're an EV operator, and I saw a story this morning where this guy, now this is self-reported. I don't know if I should take this with a grain of salt or not. Buddy from Vancouver drove from here to Vancouver in almost five days. And he's an electric vehicle. Now, whether or not that's as accurate as the story portrays, I really don't know. Maybe Buddy's lying, but there you go. Okay. So apparently, lo and behold... The report into alleged workplace harassment and bullying at Elections NL does exist. What do you know? Now, it took a complaint to, to the citizen's representative to finally see this report land apparently on Premier Fury's desk a uh, quarter to five on Monday afternoon. So it does exist. A couple of things. So there was 21 individuals who were interviewed. 
the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, says that, you know, they wonder why, and the Speaker wonders why. So many people were talking about this in the public sphere. I'll tell you why, because people talk. If something like that exists, it is bound to get out. Keeping a secret is monumentally difficult these days. And so even if you're, and stick with this. So the report, people were going to know it was out there. The questions will be these. How does the speaker sit on it for a couple of months without actually saying that he has the report on his desk and looking for guidance as to what's next? Right? There's a couple of homes where it absolutely belongs, and one of them should be understanding that the premier needs to be in the loop. So we don't know who knew what when. But yes, how did this actual report exist for so long? Then, notably, the premier said he's going to send it down to the office of the uh, privacy commissioner, information commissioner, Michael Harvey, to scrub it, as he says. Excellent idea. Has to be done. We're talking about human resources. Have to protect the privacy of the individuals who are spoken about in this report. Here's a novel idea. Let's also let Mr. Harvey be the person who adjudicates the release of what portion or reports in full. Not just this one. Not just this one. Every report that's been deemed a cabinet secret. Every report that's been deemed a result of our client solicitor privilege. How about the Rothschild report? How about everything? If it's good enough on this report for Mr. Harvey to be the person who says yay or nay and how to redact certain portions of information, let's let him do his job with the other reports that we'd all like to have a sneak peek at. Seriously. You know, Mr. Harvey thinks and suggests and says that there's been potential abuse of absolutely labeling something uh, client solicitor privilege. He should be the one that determines whether or not that's accurate. He should be the one that determines whether or not that's a, a reasonable stance for government to take. The Rothschild report can be easily evaluated by Mr. Harvey to protect all commercial sensitivities, to protect the bidding process as we look at whatever the bloody report recommends. We saw the Green Report. How does that not job? I know there's going to be numbers, whether it be the value of our assets in the oil and gas business and what the NLC looks like or whatever else. But let's let Mr. Harvey do his job. What do you think? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefeosim.com. And yesterday, with our tune, we were in the year of 1975. Let's stick there. It was today at the top of the adult contemporary charts on this date. Get this. The Captain and Tennille. Love will keep us together when we come back. We're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number six. Johnny, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. I'm just uh, curious about gas prices this morning. Uh, I noticed on Monday night it went up nine cents. Yep. And I'm uh, very, very curious. There wasn't one word about wide reasoning or any breakdowns or anything about why it went up. But I remember Minister Cody saying a couple of months ago that if the there was a possibility that if they removed some of the gas taxes, the federal government would, in return would add more carbon tax. Very curious to see if that's what happened here. Well, I don't there. think so. Uh, I'm still not 100% sure, Johnny, what the backstop implication actually means, to be honest with you. I'm having a hard time figuring that one out. Yeah, but the, the carbon tax is a set-in-stone number here in this province as of the 1st of May. It's just over 11 cents. So, yeah. you know, this tax... and. 
if it was a carbon tax increase, then the province is going to have to reflect it as such because we've been told by the province that carbon taxes will be uh, broken out and they will understand how much is brought in f- from the carbon tax and how it's going to be used. Because remember, they tell us it's earmarked for, you know, greener alternatives and da 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 even though yeah. it's hard to get that kind of information as well. So, But, but that's some of the problem, isn't it? You know, your yeah. mind goes there. Others will go down the exact same path. People yeah. will have different, uh, you know, thoughts on how this happens and what interruption formula is used and what they're using for a benchmark price. And Mr. McTeague this morning on with Ben says the benchmark he's using is different than the one the PUB is using. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going on. Absolutely. It should be a breakdown on the PUB. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems like, I, I don't know, it just seems like we're hurting. And, and you know, the oil companies are keeping the same profit margin. Uh, that's the part that we don't include. It's the higher margins at the refineries. That is a big component of this. I know the price of barrel of oil. There is a lot of confusion about what that means uh, yeah. uh, in relation to the price of uh, gasoline. The price of barrel of oil, uh, Brent crude, is about 70% of the yeah. pro- eventual price of gas. But yeah, I mean, that's the problem here is we're all guessing about what's going on. And there is a breakdown available from the PUB off. as to mm-hmm. what makes up the eventual price. Now, they don't break down their rationale, but there is a breakdown from the federal excise tax, provincial tax, carbon tax, HST, and of course, the just the base product price. Right, yeah. Yeah, I know, there's a bit of confusion and everybody's getting frustrated now, I guess. You sure. know, with the with their, with their prices, it's just, and I see an article this morning and, and uh, on your website actually that some experts are saying this could continue right till September, same prices, maybe even higher. It's a bit frustrating, right? It cost me 120 something dollars to fill up behind the Civic. Bloomberg is saying, and Goldman Sachs are saying that they're forecasting in and around 140 bucks a barrel Brent crude uh, through the summer. So yeah. obviously, the end of the hikes in gas prices, we're not there yet. No, absolutely not. The only thing we can hope for, I guess, is the Canadian dollar to get stronger. Yeah, which, of course, will be good for the uh, provincial coffers, where we trade in American dollars per barrel. So that's absolutely important. But, you know, there's a flip side of that, too, isn't there? When I worked in the hospitality industry, you knew you were going to have a strong season or shoulder season if the Canadian dollar was, quote-unquote, relatively weak, because it makes it a really attractive option, for instance, someone uh, working and living in the European Union and or the United States, because now, all of a sudden, their money stretched so much further. So there's always a bit of a double-edged sword with the value of the dollar. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah, it is one. Well, thanks, Patty, for hearing me out this morning, and uh, you have a good day. Same to you, Johnny. Thanks for the call. Yeah, you too. Buddy. All right, thanks, man. Buddy. Bye-bye. Uh, where do you want me to go here now? Actually, I'm going to go to line two. Hi, Betty. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? Well, I don't feel too good, to be honest with you. I'm a kind of upset, and I'm a first-time caller. You just take your time. You sound great. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, what I'm calling about now, Patty, is... There, a little while ago, uh, I have, you know where the Southern Shore is, Cape Royal? Yes, ma'am. And I have two sons buried up in Our Lady of the Cape Cemetery. So one of my sons, like he was a moose hunter, and my grandson had a moose, and he had it for a couple of years, so he decided to put it up on his grave. So... The 12th of May, his son graduated, and he wanted his pictures taken down on his father's grave with the moose on the grave. You see, it's an ornament. It's not a real moose. So anyway, he went down, and he had his pictures taken. So that was fine. They put the pictures on Facebook, you know, like at a, a special occasion. So two weeks after... He goes up, you know, checking the graves and that. Somebody was after going up and robbing his moose. 
took, took the moose off the grave. Now, how little can anybody be to go in on a grave and take something, you know, off of somebody's grave? It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. But, you know, whoever the individuals are, I'd like very much, or the individual, I'd like for the moose to be put right back where it came from, you know. I mean, going in and robbing from the dead is not very good. And I don't know how anybody can go home and rest knowing that they're in raiding graves, you know. I mean, I'm upset, Patty, you know, like when I went up yesterday and the moose was gone, I came back and I cried and cried and cried. I can imagine and I understand why. Yeah, I, was I, have two, this, um, I have two sons buried up there, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you're there and you're trying to, I mean, not because they're gone. You go up there and you do up their graves, you know, and you make try to make it look, you know, a bit decent and this and that, and you're spending money. So what's the use of the moose to somebody else, you know? It's no, no value to them, you know. But I, I, I can't see why people do those things, going in and raiding the graves and taking stuff off the graves. And I'd like, if anybody happened to know anything about the, the individuals or the individual or happened to see the noose, you know, I'd like to know something. They could either call your show and let you know and what's going on but I'd like to have the moose put back where the moose was taken from and that's all it'd be to it you know I hope that someone hears this neither has a pang of guilt that caused them to bring it back but I tell you there was a few years ago I was just cleaning up the graves down in the cove yeah and a person was pretty sure that I didn't see what they were doing and this just a couple of days before the graveyard mass the cemetery mass and they took what were artificial flowers from a plot down the hill and brought them up to their plot. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you like? And before I had a chance to say anything, they were gone like a flash. You know, just even moving around something like a little black pot of artificial flowers that someone obviously purposefully put there on their own loved one's grave and just mm-hmm. took them. Like, you must be just a, a sour person to be able to do something like that. I know. I can't see how they can go home and rest, you know, knowing that it come off of a grave and there's no good to them, you know. Yep. And if they took it for their cabin, I hope somebody see the moose because his daughter had it on Facebook, you know, the, of his son getting his picture taken and the moose on the grave and this and that. But somebody out there knows something. They and do. I just, I just hope that they are listening listening to your show this morning and that they will be able to come up, you know, and let me know what's what. And like I said, I'd love to have the moose put back on his grave. I hope it happens, and I'm really sorry this happened to you, Betty. Yes. Well, it happens to everybody, Patty. It's going on all over, you know, and <laughs> it's it got to, a stop got to be put to it because they're either doing it for money or I don't know, you know, it makes you wonder sometimes. I think they're but, just doing it because they're a nuisance. That's all. 
And I mean, I don't wish no, nothing on nobody, but I'm after saying queer things yesterday. You know, I said, whoever took it, I said, I hope they'd never be able to lift their arms again. But, you know, you can't, I, I don't know. But it breaks my heart. I come home yesterday. I was in Cape Royal, and when I see, you know, like the moose was gone, it broke my heart. I come back to St. John's, and I cried and cried and cried. Well, hopefully but, your tears will dry up and it's uh, it's I think understandable when people have emotional outbursts and they think or say things they wouldn't normally say and I I think just when I heard you talk about that you reflected on it and know that you don't wish that person any harm no but I don't no, no I know you don't I know you don't yeah you're just mad for the minute yep. but I hope that they'll have the wits to be able to get up and whoever got it and look at that noose and say I got to put that back because it's a sin where what I done you know I hope so Betty I appreciate the time and the call and fingers crossed next time anybody belong to the families in the graveyard the moose will be back thank you very much Patty and have a nice day the very same to you ma'am Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Let's take a break. Talk away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let us go. Line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick Daly. Morning. Those two subjects, uh, well, a lot of subjects, but especially the two when it comes to uh, Marine Atlantic and EVs are very important. I'll just give you a little example. I called reservations about a month ago and told them I'd like to get on one of their ferries to go visit a couple of friends in Nova Scotia, and I'd need just to plug in my car. And, uh, you know, it's only a 110 outlet or a level two. The, the, the big ferry is generating enough, enough power. My little bit of energy is not going to make much difference. And the lady told me, no, we can't do that. Uh, you know, everyone else is driving gas cars. You know, that's the way it's going to have to be. And they have no instructions on electric cars. This is the government of Canada. This is a crown corporation, you know. So, I mean, it, like there's a big opportunity there for Marine Atlantic to offer that service so that when we get to the other side, because there is no plug-in station that I'm aware of in Port of Bath. There is one in Cornerbrook. But, you know, when you get there, you want to get in the lineup, and then you want to get on the boat, and you're sitting on the boat for 10 hours. It's a good opportunity to have your car charged and then some plug-in, like, once it's charged, and there's an indicator right in the dash that'll let the Marine Atlantic people know that it's charged. They can just plug in or take the plug out, or they can plug in someone else's electric vehicle. And away we go. So, first of all, they have no policy on that uh, that I'm aware of. Well, they, are, they do. They're actually working towards... Uh, electric car or electric vehicle infrastructure as we speak there was a story at the end of last year that they were doing exactly that and when i read it um just trying to do some recall here mm-hmm. i looked at where the closest charging stations were on either side there's the north sydney mall has several fast chargers right there in their parking lot so i guess travelers heading towards the ferry will get their last electric top up at the north sydney mall because at this point on the marine atlantic property i don't think the charging station there, but they very clearly said last year they're working towards because they know some of their customers will absolutely be driving an EV. So I don't know if there was any plans for on board, but there was for on site. So I'll do some follow up. I'll send our Mercer a quick email to well, see if you can give great, us a. Because something. I've left four messages for them now in the past three weeks, uh, waiting for 
return call at their head office because the people at the reservations didn't know what to say. Uh, and the mall is a you know decent distance away. So when it you're is. in the lineup, even if they had a couple of charging stations and a like an EV lineup, you can just plug them in while you're waiting. And there's not going to be a lot of us yet, but there will be as the summer cruises on and, and people start saying, I think I'll take my electric vehicle over to Newfoundland since we've got charging stations along the highways and, and, and other places. But That's... there's a second issue last week when we discussed this. Uh, well, first of all, just, just one last thought uh, on electric vehicles. They're fabulous. If you're not going to be going off in all directions and you get a good plan made for your day, it can work for you. I mean, I live in Bellevue, and I have to come back and forth quite often to St. John's. And as long as I have my, like I'm not just roaming around, and I have my destinations you know, planned out, and I can get back on the highway with a couple of hundred kilometers left on my, on my computer screen, uh, and as long as I go by by the logic of how these batteries work, because if you drive them really hard, they're going to go down really fast. So if you drive them easy and you're not breaking the speed limits and all that, you will get a, you know, a decent charge out of mine, which is a Bolt. And the Bolt uh, is apparently uh, very affordable. Uh, with all the rebates now, you can pick one up for around $30,000, and you can't get all out of car these days for $30,000. Yeah, the Chevy Bolt, I mean, I know it's an American release, but they say it's going to come in at a price point under 30. What that translates to Canada in 2024, I don't know. But I do think price points and reliability and range and flammability and all these things will improve as the years go on. And the argument that's been made repeatedly in my email is that if everyone plugged in tonight, the grid couldn't handle it. Well, like I also said off the top of the show, there will be more white Dodge pickups drive down Kmart Road today than there are electric vehicles in the province, period. You're spot on. And the other so. thing about Marine Atlantic was... Anyway, quickly, Sean. Last week, and you had and you had another call coming in, or a few calls at the end of the program. I didn't quite get in a couple of things. It was about the pet issue, and you know, like I love pets. All my family members have pets. Even my daughter has a has a dog, and I love them. But you know, some of us had severe anaphylactic reactions to dander, not necessarily to the hair, but to dander. And most, if not all, pets have dander. So if if Marine Atlantic puts those in cabins, or even brings them on board and lets them uh, go up around where all the uh, all the other passengers are. You know, the chances of someone out on the ship, uh, like out at sea, getting uh, or having an allergic reaction is pretty good. Um, you know, like, like, like it's pretty easy. Just ask anyone with a hay fever issue. Uh, all you can do is just walk down the road today and you're breathing in what's, what's out there uh, uh, pollinating. So it is a serious issue. Uh, I would hope that Marine Atlantic would look at it and say, well, you know, this works for, for Via Rail. They have a pet area, and has always worked for, for Marine Atlantic. They had a pet area. And the reason that Via has done this, according to the people I've talked to at Via a few years ago, was because the Canadian Medical Association put out a, uh, a carte blanche statement that this is a big issue in public transport. And we've got to protect the people who are getting on board public transport so that they don't end up in a, in a serious uh, health emergency while on board a plane, which you mentioned last week. While on board a train, it's easier. You can get off the train or go to another car. But on a boat, just like on a plane, you don't have anywhere to go. And they don't let you, at least during COVID, they didn't let you out of your cabin. I don't know what they're doing these days. They probably are now. Uh, because of COVID, they were locking everyone down in the cabin for the whole trip. Um, but, you know, the cabins are where the pets are going to be, but, but people are going to be taking them out on the deck and walking them through the ship to get down to the deck and all that stuff. It's a serious issue, and I think that they should reevaluate it for the people that have serious anaphylactic or possible anaphylactic issues because you can't get the treatment you need out in the middle of the, the Atlantic Ocean if you need it. Uh, you can't get to an emergency room, and they definitely don't have the equipment on board to, to, to look after you if you run into a problem. 
and people say, we can just take an allergy pill. Well, not all allergy pills uh, work with all animals, so that's that's the situation. But, but like when the Canadian Medical Association comes out with a unanimous declaration that, no, don't allow pets except for service animals uh, in the general populace, uh, you know, like, like have a designated area for them, uh, that's a very serious concern. And I think if you, if you talk to the, uh, the CMA uh, and even Mr. Haggie or Dr. Haggie, they'll be able to confirm that. I appreciate this this morning, Sean. Thank you. Okay. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, very quickly, when we come back, Emily Wan, she's the program manager with Safe Work Access, Safe Works Access Program. We know that beginning next year, the province of British Columbia has re- re- received an exemption from Ottawa to allow the residents to possess 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, and MDMA. It's a healthcare issue versus a criminal justice matter. The country may not be ready for the conversation, but we do find ourselves in an opioid crisis. What that looks like and the path forward, even though this might be contentious and emotional and unacceptable in some corners, it's a conversation that's beginning, and we're going to continue with Emily right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the program manager with Safe Works Access Program. That's Emily Wadden. Good morning, Emily. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to have you on the show. Look, and as I admit freely, there are still portions of the country, individuals who are not even sold on the fact that the uh, federal government has decriminal, or pardon me, legalized cannabis products. So the next step of these conversations regarding harm reduction or other illicit drugs is going to be tricky. But here we are. The province of British Columbia has gotten an exemption from Ottawa regarding the criminal code. Individuals can possess up to 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA. Your initial reaction. Honestly, um, as a harm reduction advocate and community worker, um, it's absolutely a step in the right direction, um, no doubt and no question about it. However, um, honestly, it really doesn't do a whole lot to you know, address the current extremely toxic drug supply, which honestly is the number one issue Canada-wide. Um, but like I said, it is a right step, or it is a step, sorry, in the right direction. And, you know, this conversation, it's a big deal that this conversation has started and that, you know, even just one province has chosen to move forward with decrim and hopefully, you know, many more can follow suit sooner than later. Well, safety of supply, obviously, with the new appearance of so many of these drugs having the fentanyl, fentanyl included has proven to be quite deadly. But just as an example where, of course, let's talk harm reduction and safe supply regulated supply now in a second but even in the country of Portugal back in 2001 they had a crisis of heroin, heroin overdose deaths and they pardon me they decriminalized possession of all illegal drugs even though their drugs were still coming from the black market Portugal's drug related death rate is four times lower than the European average so it doesn't go all the way but it's a step in the right direction let's go to harm reduction so people look at Canada and say that we're really moving very quickly on these fronts whether it be legalizing of cannabis talking about safe supply, uh, safe injection sites. But what does a regulated supply look like? Because in some countries, like in Switzerland, they're actually prescribing a pharmaceutical-grade heroin to long-term users. So in your opinion and where you come from, what does a safe supply look like? So I think here locally in Newfoundland, a safe supply, you know, it it could look like a couple of things. I mean, if we want to go on, you know, the extreme other side of the spectrum, perhaps that could look like legalization similar to maybe alcohol, um, maybe prior to the large tax increase there. Um, So that's one route, just legalization. You know, folks can go into a store and, you know, purchase what they'd like. Because I think it's important to remind people that, you know, despite what 
what, you know, people say and what society thinks about drugs and all of this, that, you know, drugs inherently aren't that dangerous and they are, they're, they're illegal, um, or sorry, they're dangerous because they're illegal, not illegal because they're dangerous. So the criminalization piece has a huge impact in the quality of our drugs. So regulating them to sell them in a store would be fine. Or like you mentioned in Switzerland and, you know, even provinces throughout the Atlantic, they've started similar programs whereby, you know, heroin or the, you know, generic name or drug story is prescribed to individuals. Um, In some places you can actually sit down very similar to um, a safe injection site and actually, you know, you're given your couple pills or your dose for that time and you sit down and you inject it and then you go on your way. Um, So any of those programs are also great. I mean, if we're going to go the, you know, safe supply needs to be prescribed route, we would need to ensure that, you know, anybody interested is able to, you know, be part of this program. Because at the moment, it's very much um, for folks who have kind of trialed and failed on, you know, other interventions like methadone, suboxone, et cetera. And those are the ones who are kind of getting first pick at the programs. So there's definitely a few routes um, that could be taken. Some maybe um, might make the public a little more comfortable, like just, you know, maybe giving it to doctors to prescribe. But we've definitely got some work to do. And, you know, there's there's many things we can do. And I'm, I'm excited and curious to see what happens, certainly. The conversation is almost counterintuitive because, you know, some people that push back when I talk about harm reduction or safe injection sites or otherwise say we're enabling people. But that hasn't been the case in other jurisdictions, whether it be in Switzerland, Estonia, Portugal, the number of users has gone down. The uh, yeah. incidence of hepatitis has gone down. Crime has gone down. So I know people think that this is nonsensical, foolish, left-leaning, wing-night type, type conversations, but it's based in fact and reality absolutely. and historical context. This is something else that is absolutely counterintuitive. We talk about methadone as a pathway off your addiction to an opioid or something. When in fact, the medical community will tell you, from a medical perspective, heroin is easier on the body than methadone. It doesn't sound like it makes sense, but who's to say what makes sense beyond people who actually understand the physiological implication of methadone versus heroin and what is safer, whether it be for hep C, whether it be for safe injection, whether it be for crime, whether it be for hospitalization or death. People are dying in this country to not consider it a crisis and take the next step. We're just turning our backs on it and stigmatizing someone who's been uh, addicted to a substance. It could have started on a doctor's prescription pad. It could have started at the bar. It could have started amongst your buddies on a Friday night, but who cares where it started? The fact is, if you're addicted and the two most expensive things in the country are in hospital or in jail, let's see what we can do about it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And that's the thing. I mean, society oftentimes, you know, people seem to listen to just, you know, the opinion pieces or read the opinion pieces in the news and, you know, stuff that's very sensationalized, not based on fact. And, you know, if only we could get many of these facts out there that, like you said, instances of disease go down. People do not start using drugs just because they're freely available. These interventions are absolutely targeted, created for and created by, you know, people who use drugs and are addicted to drugs and need other um, alternatives and interventions. To me, it's like the conversation or akin to the conversation regarding sexual education. You hear about it doesn't mean you're going to try it. You know, so same thing here. Even if we just boil it back to the fundamental drug that is cannabis and has long been understood. 
the numbers of people using cannabis in this country did not go up after legalization. It just did not. It went up inside of uh, two segments, one briefly, and that was with youth 18 to 25. The one where it went up and continues to be up, whether it be through CBD and or uh, THC, is seniors. And that doesn't make them bad people. It could be used for medical interventions. It could be used to stimulate appetite. It could be used to help you sleep. It could be used for pain management. There's things that are happening where let's see what's actually happening versus what we think are the implications. Because we can go down some paths where all of a sudden harm reduction becomes an ill-advised phrase, an unwelcomed phrase. And all we do then is we ensure more and more people are hurt. We ensure more and more people might be in jeopardy uh, so far as the public safety goes. We ensure that more and more people may fall prey and end up dead as a result of an opioid-related overdose, of which the numbers are staggering. Absolutely, and they're unfortunately not going to go down. Things are going to continue to get worse, you know, until, you know, more safe supply programs are created and expanded throughout the country, or until something, you know, dramatically changes, we are going to continue on this road of, you know, loved ones losing their own loved ones many times over and yep definitely um you know something big has has needs to change and shift and it absolutely needs to be based on fact and not public perception the trick there is how you craft it you know it's one thing for you and your position at your organization but even if you just boil it back to say for instance we treat it as a criminal justice issue versus a health issue well then let's listen to the people at the tops of those fields. The chiefs of police across the country agree the conversation is due. Healthcare professional, public health authorities, they agree that if we don't treat it like a healthcare issue versus just locking people up for possessing a small amount, then we're missing the boat. We will always be able to crack down on the trafficking, always be able to crack down on the criminal element and the gang intervention in the drug business. We're talking about individuals. We're not talking about the cartels, right? So. Just imagine if we could refocus attention inside the country's courts and inside law enforcement at all levels, and they focus in on chasing the real bad guys versus the users, we'll probably do a lot more to deal with more bad guys. Like, you know, refunding resources, refocusing the conversation, it's time. And I know the country and many people listening to this show this morning will be yelling at me thinking that I'm just enabling drug users when I've thought about this long enough to think I'm willing to talk about it publicly because I don't think that's fair or accurate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with you, Patty, honestly. And I was thinking the same about some of the listeners. And I'm, I'm, honestly, it's an honor to uh, have the opportunity to talk about this uh, on your show. And just going back to what you just mentioned about, you know, focusing the groups of people that are bringing in huge quantities and not focusing on the vi- individual, you know, getting caught with, you know, a very small amount of drugs, um, say, you know, two grams, which currently for the next seven months is still illegal because this um, decrim doesn't come into effect, unfortunately, until January 31st of 2023. But for individuals just getting caught with small amounts and then, you know, having to go through the court system and having a record, you know, those records can be just, you know, that can make the difference between, you know, obtaining housing, obtaining employment to get the housing and maintain your housing and all of those things just because of this one silly charge. So getting rid of this and, you know, enacting decriminalization does a whole lot more for people than just simply not making them go to jail or be charged. It has long-standing repercussions for decades to come. Um, And yeah, so it's great. 
Yeah, that, yeah. And again, I'm going to get some emails that are 100% opposed <laughs> to what we're talking about. Yep. And you know what? I can accept that. And I know yep. where it's okay. coming from. And if people yep. would like to uh, offer their perspective, whether it be via email or on Twitter or here live on the program, let's do it because the conversation hasn't started wide enough. And until it does, then status quo will just be, continue to be the way. And whether people like it or not, the status quo is not working for anybody. Nope. Nobody. Nope. So let's not see if we can make point. it work a little bit better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I'll give you the last word, Emily, before we have to go. No, I just want to say thank you so much um, for this. Like I mentioned, you know, we're excited. It's definitely a step in the right direction. And, you know, hopefully governments in the Atlantic regions um, certainly can, you know, follow suit sooner than later. This is the first step on, you know, a long series of steps. Um, But, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll get there. I think we probably will. If you even just look inside your own social circles and your friends and your family, if anyone's had a problem with any of these types of drugs, then all we have to do is acknowledge that's the case, regardless of how they found themselves in that death spiral, and then talk about ways to help them out and harm reduction and safe injection and law enforcement and the healthcare system. I think very quickly we'll change some tunes. And I'm not here to change anybody's mind. I'm just here to try to provoke the conversation so that all sides can be heard. And then we can come up with, you know, consensus or collaboration or middle ground or whatever the right word is. I'm not sure. Uh, Emily, good to have you on. Stay in touch. Thank you so much, Patty. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Emily Wild. She's program director at SafeWorks Access Program. And I know that will ruffle some feathers. And some of you will be quite cross we're talking about. It. And I get that. So call with the other perspective, and we'll just keep the chat going. Or we can talk about whatever's on your mind after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Jay. You're on the air. Yes, Cuddy. Good day. Good day to you. First time caller. Excellent. Welcome to the show. Good. Uh, about the COD tags, you had a fellow on there a couple of days ago talking about uh, they were going to have tags. 30 well, tags, I guess? No, not that they were. We, he was just spitballing as to what that might look like if there was tags. Yes, because uh, about 25 years ago they tried this. Uh, I bought 10 tags, 25 years, cost about 15 bucks. And you still had a job to get those tags filled. Now, but to come home, you're like a lot of people are on social systems, the fixed incomes. Now, if you're getting 30 tags, he never said what kind of a price that would be or how you would have to do it. Because I have a moose license and only like I'm on social assistance myself. And I don't have a computer and I don't have the internet. So I had to get this done through someone else. Now, the card licenses, it would probably be the same thing. They're trying to make it hard for the people that's on fixed income or people that's on social assistance. I don't know what the associated cost would need to be, but of course, if you're going to implement something like this, it's got to be easy to execute, whether it be access points or price point, whatever it is. I agree with that in full. If you put it in, it becomes a real nuisance for so many people to try to get the tags, then you're not satisfying anything. And I used to think, Jay, that the cod tags for the recreational food fishery was a bad idea. But now maybe it's simply because of the price of fuel and three days only per week you can go and some nasty weather and a compressed season and rotational workers. If I had my tags, I'd get them whenever I want through the entirety of the season, maybe in one day or two days. Then that seems to make a bit more sense to me than it used to in the past. 
That's true, yes. But um, if you had to, if you if, if they were going to give the tags out to people so you could only get your 30 fish, yes, that would be fine. But the people that, that can't afford these tags or can't do this wouldn't be allowed to go down on the beach and even cast a rod to even try to get one. Yeah, you'd have to consider all the angles. I, I agree with that 100%. There's not going to be a real easy, accepted by all play here. But I think for folks who are, for instance, even just the rotation workers that complain about this to me all the time, they'd be okay because they'd have a fairly long season to, if they wanted to go out on a Thursday as opposed to Saturday, Sunday, Monday, then maybe they'd be able to do it. But if there's going to be barriers, then we have to talk about that because if you're just going to change the system, which makes it worse for 10, 20, 30% of the population, then we're not getting any further ahead. So yeah, there's just got to be a discussion as to how it works. And remember, even some of the commercial harvesters say that the food fishery hurts their individual quota. With a tag system, we'd be able to actually record exactly how many fish were taken. The anecdotal evidence is it's about 1% or less of the total allowable catch. So he'd probably kill a bunch of birds with the same stone if we figured this out. Well, what I figured is that uh, they're going to, I think it was another money grab. There's going to be another money grab. You're going to have to pay for your tags. Then a lot of people that can't afford it is not going to be allowed to go fishing, even off the beach. And then when they come home here, how many tags are going to be sold? It's going to be expensive. A lot of people can't afford a gas or a boat to go out anyway. This is what they're doing now. You, there is no license. So you have people that's paying $15, $20 each and getting somebody to take them out to try to get their fish. Now, if you're going around all this bay in a dory, it's kind of hard to get the fish. And the only ones that's going to get that fish is the big boats that have these sonars, depth finders, fish finders. The, the big people, right? Yeah, I don't know what the perfect solution is. I think it would make it easier and maybe safer with the tag system. But the points that you bring up, you know, they've got to be figured out. And I, honest to God, I don't pretend to know what the perfect answer is here. And there's probably no perfect solution. I think that just might make it easier. And I think safety is one of the things that you can really satisfy with the tag system. Because whether or not people are making poor decisions when they should know better, sometimes people feel like, well, it's the last three days of the season. I'd still like to put a, a few in the freezer. I'm only in a small craft but i'm not going to go too far from shore they convince themselves that they're doing something that's okay and safe but maybe not so i think there's good reasons to uh, consider imposing a tax system but the pushback is obviously going to be what it is and i'm happy to have the conversation about the good the bad and the ugly of it uh it's more going to be ugly i think <laughs> well if that's true then we shouldn't do it <laughs> that's right but they're going to do it anyways because there's another money grab and they know that it's come home here and everybody wants to be out fishing well it's probably not going to happen this year i don't think even if anyone at dfo or the province thinks it's a good idea and lobbying for it it'd be you know because here we are we're so close to when the season would open like in years past what did i read the dates from 2021 the news story appeared on vocm.com on the 29th of may for the season open on the third of July. So we're well inside that. Look, if it's going to open on the 3rd of July, we're less than a month. So there'd be an awful lot of arson around and producing the tags and people getting tags if we open in and around the same time this year. So we'll see. Yes, because here's a lot of people talking about it. And like you said, uh, my arse is getting sore from sitting down. It's time to start standing up. It's time for me to get moving too. I can tell you that. <laughs> okay, my buddy, you have a good one. Appreciate the call. You do. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, look, I, I, no doubt. The, the contentious issues surrounding the recreational food fishery, most of what you hear is completely legitimate. Now, one, I think, sentiment will be offered quite forcefully is that I shouldn't have to be told if I can go out on the water and get a cod by anybody. I get that, but that's where we have the people, like even, for instance, with the five per person, 15 per boat, which is not actually a law, it's a suggestion as far as we can tell, is there will be some 
who've got the time on their hands and they got access to a boat, they might go out repeatedly most of the three days available each week from Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So when DFO thinks that's happening, and it probably is, and I know one person who absolutely does do it, then that's why they bring some of these bloody restrictions in. You know, so our God-given access to the resource, that's a fair argument to make. But when we throw everything to the wind and no regulations, no rules, no controls, no oversights, then we get people abusing it to the nth degree, and then we all pay the price. So what the right play is for this year's fishery, I don't know. But the tag system, even if it's just about the price of fuel, which is a real sensitive issue for so many people today. Maybe that's it. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, caller in the queue wants to talk about the Liberal Member of Parliament. I think the riding is called the Long Range Mountains, Cody Hutchings. And then when we come back, we'll hear what Mike has to say. And then Don wants to chime in on the food fishery as well. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let us go. Line number four. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Penny, uh, I want to speak about uh, Minister Goody, Goody Hutchings, uh, Minister, I believe, is Rural and Economic Development in the Government of Canada. But before I do that, I want to give recognition to uh, a young man from St. John's who's finds himself in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, in, in the finals in the, in, for, the, for the big big cup. A uh, young fellow by the name of Alex Newhook. And, uh, boy, that's not bad. What is he, 20 or 21? 21. Just turned 21 in January. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It really, truly is. I'm pinching myself all the time. I met Alex the day he was born. And uh, he's a lovely young man on top of being a tremendous hockey player. So we're all thrilled for him. I, I interacted with him, you know, sort of. My my grandson played in the same league, and they played together. I think sometime over the years, uh, I met him. He's very very he's a real gentleman. He's really good. But uh, you know, I heard uh, on uh, one of the stations the other night, his mom. I think her name was Paula, if I remember correctly. That's right. Uh, being interviewed, boy, oh boy, what a lady, what a great speaker, what a good communicator. And and it's not hard to see where Alex gets his, uh, you know, uh, gets his smarts. His uh, and, uh, his sister Abby's the same way, and Paula, Sean, and I. We were, we were schoolmates, right? Right back to kindergarten. We're all the same age. We live on the same street. Uh, the boys oh. all played together growing up. So this is this has been exciting for so many people who, you know, not only around the province who don't know Alex, but certainly for those of us who have known the family for a long time. It's just been a real roller coaster ride, and I'm just over the moon for him. Good for him. Yeah, he's, he's an ambassador, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, thanks to him for the way he's been behaving. And don't pull a, a cane and, and whack somebody in the back, please. Don't do that. Uh, he's not really built like that. <laughs> he's not. He's not that. I don't think he's that nature. Um, anyway, uh, if I can, I'm going to move on to uh, Miss Hutchings, Goody Hutchings. Uh, that's a lady I've always had a lot of tremendous respect for. I still do. Um, I, uh, she's always been a hard worker and very committed to her. Um, uh, I believe she was perhaps an assistant at one point in time uh, with uh, Mr. Byrne or, or Mr. Tolman or something like that uh, before she got out into the active end of it as a member of parliament. And uh, she seems to be a, you know, a doer. And we have two ministers. Newfoundland Labrador has two ministers at the cabinet table in the government of Canada. And that says a lot. But uh, I heard her being interviewed in the media the last couple of days, Patty. And in one way, i got to congratulate her for her honesty, okay? You may recall that when the federal minister of fisheries, Joyce Murray, was in, uh, was in our province to announce the findings uh, or the report of the Atlantic Seal Science Task Force. 
you know that was a, a an elite group of very you know uh, who uh, studied the state of the Atlantic seal science and uh, what was going on there and what should have been a one year got dragged out to two years but nonetheless they got it out and uh, uh, Minister Murray in in those recommendations there were quite a number of recommendations but Minister Murray promptly punted it over to Minister Hutchings to Goody Hutchings to her department to sort of become active in it, you know? They were going, the fisheries are going to study more science. I don't know why. It's a collective yawn here for me to hear it. I mean, we've had uh, 30, 40 years of this now, and whether we got to 7.5 or 8 million or 9 million seals, it's all the same. Every harvest realtor can tell you they're up in the wharfs, they're up in the streams, they're eating everything. Uh, but uh, that's where she wants to go. She wants more science, kick the can down the road. The Minister of uh, of Economic Development, Rural and Economic Development, had it thrown over to her by the federal minister and said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll deal with product and market development that way. When Minister Hutchings got on the radio in the last couple of days or in the media that I've heard, she danced around the issue. And that disappointed me, Patty. It was she. She pushed it back to Minister uh, Murray and by saying, "Oh, we need more science. So we got to study more science. So we're going to have this forum." But when she was asked about the trade barriers that are the real damage that really shuts down this industry, you can't sell a can of seal meat uh, down in the United States. You can't bring one down to Nan and Pop or Mom and Dad down in the States, or it'll be seized. By some gun-toting border patrol guy, and uh, you can't you have can't a sealskin purse. No, can't have a purse. Can't bring some mats. Can't bring a. Can't bring anything. It's a. It's a crime against humanity to bring it down. That's under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Now that was when animal rights people, animal rights societies, ARS, when they. Uh, when they were able to get through all of this misrepresentation and downright lies many times, what was going on, and convince Congress and that to bring in this Marine Mammal Protection Act and put them in. And so that's still in place. Even though we've had a free tra- couple of free trade agreement renegotiations, our old minister, God rest his soul, Mr. Crosby was a minister of international trade. Nobody did anything on that. And then in Europe, it's the same thing. You can't bring anything in there unless you're Aboriginal. But the way that the Americans and the Europeans are not that stupid. They realize that when it comes to supporting green peace or brown peace, they're going to go brown peace any day because the Aboriginal people know how to rub their nose in it. So there are exclusions. There are exclusions for Aboriginal people to be able to bring some product in, but they don't have the bulk we have. And they also hurt very badly and they, they were screwed out of their compensation uh, requested by the Maloof Commission. So here we have now Minister Hutchings, who's uh, who's a minister at the cabinet table with Minister Murray. And Minister Hutchings says, oh, well, it's a very sensitive issue. You know, we got to be careful about our trade. We, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a coffee with that person. I mean, I've worked in all sectors of the sealing industry and the fishing industry and in government and representative associations and co-ops and product and market development in the private sector. But... This this is this is the issue, Minister. You know, you, you please don't walk away from this. Don't hide from this. You've always had such a good name. Don't ruin that and put together something to deal with it, Patty. Well, okay. Let's be 
pragmatic about it. Sure. Is the country ever going to be willing to make any sort of trade-off to try to fight the World Trade Organization or the United States with our new NAFTA 2.0 to include opportunities for SEAL versus anything else that might be jeopardized because of it? From where I sit, the answer is clearly no. Me too. I, I, I'm with you. It, it's not under the current set of circumstances because there's no onus on them to do it. There's no pressure on that department to do it. Our six liberal M- MPs, and, when, and then there were, you know, they have they avoid this issue, so they don't go to the trade negotiators. This gets slid through, and you don't even know if Minister or not Minister, Mr. Small, Clifford Small, is that his name? I believe that's right, uh, uh, Minister. He 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 tabled a private members' bill, a great t- private members' bill, in, in which he refers to pinnipeds and management. Pinnipeds, of course, are mammals or seals, and and other things. He did a great job. But our liberal MPs will not support that because they're whipped. Minister Burry has them whipped. And what that means is the federal liberals don't want anything to do it. So you are right, sir. I agree. Nobody's going to do anything unless they're told to do something. And my whole beef here this morning, I guess that's probably the wrong word to use with seal meat, but my whole beef is that seal protein to feed the world's hungry the meats, the pelts, the oils, the blubbers, the medicinal things are not going anywhere because of what are fake bans. And the minister, uh, Mr. O'Regan, he's proven himself not he, he, he to want to get his hands dirty with it. But the minister, Hutchings, it's in her area. That's where she lives. That's her ballywick, the northern peninsula. So I'm at a loss, and I'm disappointed in her approach in that. Yeah, we'll have another sealed forum late this year or next year or whenever they have it, and it'll be structured by the federal government that people who are dependent on the federal government for grants and subsidies to be able to survive as associations or small bit players, they'll be there, and they'll all give each other a pat on the back. But nobody wants to say to the minister, Come on, Minister, this is why we got to represent the interests of Newfoundland and Labrador, not Ottawa, not your yeah. party. If the folks in the industry, whether it be Carino or Vogue Furriers or whoever, that's worked to establish opening more and more markets, whether it be just in China, like wherever, it doesn't matter to me where the product gets sold, until those folks actively working in the industry can satisfy a market share that uh, reflects, reflects taking the entire annual quota, there's no pressure because that's well, the easy pushback is, well, we don't even take the quota that's allowed at this point, so why are we talking about uh, opening more when it's not even open up what we got? So the, the well, that market share doesn't exist, Patty. That's what, that's what this is all about. The market share well, doesn't exist because the market doesn't exist because there are It bands. does. But look what happened in Russia. Do you think Norway's shipping into Russia validates steel pelts? No, but I mean, even if we have places, countries in this world where we can trade that product, whether it be the Omega-3 oils or the pelt or the meat, whatever, unless that market gets satisfied in full, it's hard to make an argument that we ha- we need more market. You know, that's, all th- that's the only point I'm making, because these are the easy pushbacks for government to either quietly or out loud to say. So if we don't even take anywhere near the number of seals we're allowed to take, because there's, even, like, again, even just China and the billion people living there, if we can't even take the annual quota now, the arguments become more and more difficult, because even if you overturned 
the WTO, which is a nonsensical ruling anyway, based on ethics. The same people who live in countries where there's stuff and geese for foie gras, and they're going to bullfights, and they're talking about the ethics of a humane, regulated seal hunt. It's, it's nonsensical. So, you know, getting past the motion to getting down the brass tacks is difficult. But even if you get there, is the market even there? Even if you open up the countries who are now currently banning the product, do they even want it? I don't know. They didn't, in the, they didn't over the years. I'm not communicating this effectively to you. I apologize. Those meetings, those those markets are not there. There was a developmental market in China. It's not there. China decided it was pressured a lot by uh, animal rights groups and others that, you know, if you did this, there could be problems. So China said, this is not important to us. We don't even want to be there. And it's not there because it's not promoted. The people we have selling sealed products are fish plants. And and this this is a meat industry. It's a fur industry. It's a medicinal products industry. And we got a bunch of people who are used to saying, "How many how many containers of crab do you want?" Out marketing, they wouldn't. Some of those plants, some of those guys would know marketing if they tripped over it, if it hit them in the face. You know. So anyway, uh, I don't want to drag this out. You got you got a great show going there, and I don't want to rain on it. <laughs> but it's a. Uh, it's it, it's something that uh, I'll go back to Minister Goody Hutchins, uh, a lady who I respect, I really do. But I'm encouraging her to to be different, you know, to sit down with Mr. Small and 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 sit down with people that don't disagree or that don't agree with the federal non-movement on this issue, and find a way to make it an issue that it's important to us and it's important to our whole caucus, and not toe the party line like six of them right now will not support what's a very good bill for mr small because it's a conservative bill and they're not conservative and they're not liberal up there they're newfoundland and labradorians they're representing us and 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 we need them to do this patty thank you thanks mike have a a great day you too bye-bye uh look it's a complex issue but there's people will tell me that the conversation's over. There's never going to be any move on seals, whether it be opening markets, calls, who knows whatever else people are proposing. I don't know where it lands. It will always come back to political will. Of course it will, because there's other parts of the world that do indeed call certain animals, and we're talking about hunting problematic cormorants. We're not talking about what seals and the impact, but the whole concept of well, we need more science, well, that's not our fault. We actually fund a government department that does scientific research, compilation of data. If they don't have the, the data on hand, the science on hand, well, that's not my fault. That's not a seal harvester's fault, right? That's their fault. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. I'm just listening, and I'm phoning in uh, to do with the uh, food fishery. I yep. call it food fishery. Some people call it a recreational food fishery. But uh, no uh, no sign of uh, start updates or anything it is repeating? Not that we've heard of. Like I mentioned to a caller earlier, uh, this time last year on the 29th of May, they told us it was going to open on the 3rd of July. So even if they're going to open it up in and around the same time in July, we're getting pretty close. Okay, I just want to make a few points, if I may, about the... Uh to talk of tags again to do with this food fishery. Eh? Sure, go ahead. 
Uh, I'm not in favor. I hear a very poor man there a number of times, and he keeps bringing it up about uh, bringing tags back. But uh, it never worked in the past. And uh, how are they going to regulate it? Who's going to keep track of it? And there's a talk before. If you're going to have tags, you're going to have log books. Then the people who are going to go out have to keep a record of everything. So I can't see how it's going to work, Patty. I just don't know why it's so complicated. And I wasn't around and participating in it when the tags were last talked about and introduced like I don't know what went wrong but for the life of me I can't understand why it's so complicated that becomes unmanageable but you let me know what you think about it see uh, as a member of Newfoundland Labrador Wildlife Federation I'm also a director back in uh, 2016 at the uh, Northern College Advisory in St. John's the Wildlife Federation put in their submission and they were looking to get, and if you know, we're down to three days a week. At the time, the Wildlife Federation put in a submission that there'd be a three-month season, starting in July and then in September. So now you got people waiting for the dates to start. What's going to happen? The people in tourism industry, you know, they're trying to set up their season. What are they going to do with fish, right? Um, what does that mean? What are they going to do with the fish? How are they going to plan their season for tourism, right? Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on how many people who are booking passage are interested in jigging a cod versus anything else they might see out there, whether it be a whale or an iceberg, a puffin or whatever. I don't yeah, know. No, yeah, t- talk of tags again. But at, at the time, uh, back then, uh, I go on a limb and say the majority of people were against tags. I don't know. I don't know the numbers of people going out to fishing now. For God, I don't know that anybody else. So, back then, the majority of people are, are against any form of tags to do with cod fishing. That might be. That makes sense. I, you know, I would extend that to. There's most people are opposed to most things. But when you had, if you had it open from July to the end of September, people choose when they come and go, and then the, you know uh, safety is involved all the time. There's a, always the degree of risk going on the water, right? There is. I think we can uh, we intensify the risk with the way that they approach it currently. You know, it's this just, what does it add up to last year? What was it, 39 days between the uh, summer and fall fishery? I think that yep, was the number. 39, yep, that's what it's down to. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that's my point. I don't know. I don't see tags coming back. I can't see how they're going to make it work. They probably won't, but I just thought it was interesting. Work. And I think it all came from the fact that it's so expensive to even take the boat out, to get to the water, to get out in the boat, whether or not you're hauling it in and out of the water. Because if I can satisfy, well, let's just say all I wanted was 15 fish for the entire season, and there's an opportunity I can get that in one day, maybe two days, versus have to go out a half dozen times, then... That's, I think, some of the thought behind it now. I think that's what's driving it more than anything else versus the cumbersome issue of getting a tag and whether it ends up on the floor of the ocean or whether I have to fill out a logbook. Those things have kind of been secondary to 
One, the price of fuel, and two, safety, and three, people who don't have the opportunity. Whether it be like, for instance, the rotational worker that picks at me all the time about it. That's his argument. He says, I can't get out because I'm not here. So, I, you know, I guess it's, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit on this one, but I don't know what they're going to do. But it would be nice to know if, they're going, if and when they're going to open it this year. Yeah, time will tell, Betty. That's Thanks. for sure. Appreciate the time, Don. Bye now. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number five. Bill, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I just read a story on the CBC News website about Sheldon Hibbs. Uh, he's the guy that's charged with second-degree murder, and uh, apparently he had a chartered flight from Alberta for $92,000, as close to $92,000. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he wasn't allowed on a commercial flight because apparently he kicked up a ruckus and this and that. So I have a couple of questions. Number one, uh, they ended up paying $92,000 to bring a guy in on a private jet uh, for that, uh, for, for the six day, apparently, because they couldn't get him here within six days. If the six day had to go, he uh, would have had a, a different set of circumstances to get away with uh, with the possible crime that he's being charged with. Well, it would have the the assertion is that it would have violated his charter right. Yeah, exactly, the charter rights, exactly. Yeah. So, but my my question is, okay, so they couldn't take him on a commercial flight and whatnot. I'm I'm just wondering, uh, could have they put him on a cargo flight and and like a FedEx or something like that? And if he's that much trouble, could they have sedated him? Could they, you know? Uh, if he's a threat to that degree of verbally doing this and that, why not sedate him? And uh, and so on and so forth. And the next question I have, too, is based on $91,000 of our taxpayers' dollars to be spent, is what is the RNC's budget and what is the court's budget for their yearly uh, duties? Because... My God, there's got to be lots of money kicking around. There's for, not. For this sort of stuff. But there's not. The court's budget wouldn't include things like this, is my understanding. It would be between the RNC, and I would imagine the provincial government. At first, once they were, once the kid, young fella, what's his name, uh, Sheldon Hibbs, who's Sheldon accused Hibbs. of killing Michael King, 68-year-old man. Yeah. So... There's a couple of things that have confused me. They went to WestJet, and they were talking about hiring a Boeing 737 to the tune of $130,000. I know. And I then know. they settled with gander-based Evis Air for its, and you're right, it's almost 92. It's $91,885. The charter issue is, I mean, I guess it is what it is. I'm not a legal expert, but if you are due to be transported within a timely fashion, I guess that's the pressure. Someone said, why didn't they drive them across? Because I guess driving across is a problem with the six days anyway. My number one concern here would be, or number one question, is I don't know if sedation is, is available or allowed or whatever be approved. I don't know. But they say that they couldn't detain him in another province. My question is, why? I mean, yeah. we know provincial jurisdiction and he would have to be tried here. And maybe I'm just oversimplifying it again. But if I have people making an appearance from Her Majesty's Penitentiary or from Bishop's Falls to a, her, a magistrate in St. John's, does it make any difference if he was sitting in a prison in Red Deer? Until it came time that he had to come back for his eventual sentencing, incarceration, what have you. I just don't know why that would be the case. Are we that concerned with provincial jurisdiction that we couldn't, uh, you know, try to avoid $92,000 for a private charter flight, of which I've never been on one, and do it long distance for at least the time being until we figure it out. So I just yeah. don't know. 
I, am I totally agreeing? You, and you stole my thunder on the third thing I was going to say. <laughs> why, why the hell couldn't a judge from this province go out to Alberta and start the process and, uh, and, and get it going that way, like you said, and then, you know, bring them back in a reasonable fashion and keep the process going? I mean, there got to be ways around what they did. There just got to be. And uh, I don't know the uh, the Criminal Code of Canada, but, uh, you know, uh, did they think about that? And I would love to hear somebody from their side of the fence, the judicial side, say and tell the public, could a judge have gotten on a plane a day or two before and go out and have a court appearance with this guy on behalf of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and start the process so that when he was brought back here, that $92,000 didn't have to be spent up front. The the story irritated me to no end when I read it this morning. Uh, I'm exactly like you. I have sent a note off to somebody about provincial jurisdiction because if someone can answer that question, then we can deal with the other issues regarding six days in his charter and what exactly constitutes unruly to be kicked off of an yeah. Air Canada flight. So, I mean, there's lots of different angles and questions to be asked. But ultimately, I'd like to know why he just considered in a prison somewhere else while we start the process until we figure this out. It may be a cost-efficient way to get him home to face charges in full. Because we know, even when he gets here, his trial won't be for X number of months. So that's the question I have. What difference does it make what prison he sits in as long as we can, you know, have him in? uh, He can have a bail hearing and all those things. And if he gets bailed, then we have to cross that road. But that's the ultimate question for me. And I have no idea whether or not it's a good question or bad question or a stupid question. But I'm looking for an answer. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll finish our conversation or my rant this way. I would love for either you guys or the CBC to keep digging into it. Let the public know, did they try cargo? Amazon is coming all the time, so is FedEx and those guys. Put them in the belly of one of those planes, if need be, and package them up. Put an Amazon sticker on them. Uh-huh. I don't know whether or not the companies would be much interested in that particular freight, but that's another question as well. Well, and the third one is, is it legal when somebody is like that, a tantrum type guy, is it legal in Canada to be able to sedate a person to the degree that he's controlled so that we can safely transport these idiots back and forth? And I'm sorry for using that word, idiot. That's okay. He might I, be. I'm just, a little, I'm just a little bit worked up about the whole situation. Actually, last week I was the same guy who phoned in about the Labatt's Brewery getting the uh, million-dollar chimney. Oh, I see. Very well. Yeah, I don't know about sedation. That sounds like it's an unlikely option, but I can't answer the question in full because I don't know. But I appreciate your time this morning, Bill. Thanks a lot. Well, if he, if he was medically unstable, uh, which probably could be proved that he's me- you know, mentally or medically unstable. Or he's just uh, an unruly uh, nuisance. Sedation, sedation is, uh, is absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a legal option. And uh, anyway, I'd love to hear the public dig more into it, and, and I'd hope that my few angles in those negative ways uh, produces a lot more on this particular story. Appreciate the time. Okay, my friend. Thanks, Thank Bill. You. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Vic wants to pick up on, a, I guess, portion of the conversation I had with Emily Wadden at Safe Works Access Program regarding the fact that BC is indeed going down the road of decriminalizing possession of small amounts of cocaine, methamphetamines, MDMA. That's coming up at the beginning of next year. We'll hear what Vic has to say after this. Welcome back. Let's go top of the board, line number one. Vic, you're on the air. Morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Have a, have a great show there this morning. Thank you. 
Uh, uh, yes, I was interested in, I think you had a head of topics here, I guess, uh, legalizing illegal drugs here in Canada. Decriminalizing. Okay, decriminalizing. I'm sorry. Yes, decriminalizing. Yes, right. Uh, I'm aware that there have been, a, I think, a pilot project here in B.C. Uh, I think it's long overdue. I always advocated that uh, this uh, area of, of uh, drugs really uh, comes under the Department of Health. Really. I always felt that it really is a health issue. So now I think, uh, finally, I must congratulate the federal government for finally doing the right thing. I think we have to start somewhere. And I think this now will open it up to uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, the minister, for hopefully federally, which it is under their jurisdiction, I understand. And um, certainly uh, uh, we can have, uh, hopefully, they'll put the right uh, amount of uh, money in there and in, in expertise to look at the whole thing from the very beginning of the those uh, manufacturing, those drugs, etc. Also, uh, down down right to your family, because what we need, uh, if you look at uh, medications now that's uh, regulated by our Department of Health, I think we're doing a pretty good job here. So really, uh, hopefully, I'm hoping too that we'll have a very intensive program in terms of uh, prevention and counseling for those that are unfortunate enough to be addicted, in which we know that we have a lot of people in that area. Sure, but there's where the overlap gets... I think it's the right area, really. They're doing the right thing. Uh, That's where, you know, there's a federal exemption required because it's a criminal code exemption. But then you talk about the appropriate amount of money put in for harm reduction policies, social workers, education, treatment, whatever it is, which then becomes a provincial responsibility. So that's where when we have a really disjointed approach to healthcare across the country, not every province will buy into things like this because it becomes provincial dollars required unless the federal government healthcare transfers deals with this specifically because at this moment in time, unlike the province of BC, I would I'm going to guess the majority of provinces other than British Columbia have no interest in this because of the dollars and cents, even if it might be socially, so, uh, morally, and realistically the best idea, because it's going to cost money, it's going to be left on the wayside. i got a bad feeling. Uh, well, you're correct in what you're saying, uh, but I'm hoping, and that, not, not, that doesn't only apply to uh, a list of drugs, but it applies to other areas in our Arcadian, uh, Arcadian uh, economy, etc., our social being. Uh, unless the province gets together and agree, and uh, this applies to the fishery also, unless the province gets together and agree uh, that uh, on a federal uh, basis first, of course, and uh, it trickles down to the province. But the province, yes, the province won't be able to do anything unless they have the money. So uh, it's a very, very costly venture to uh, to uh, rehabilitate and to get involved uh, with uh, uh, people that are in certain areas of addiction. And uh, unless we get that. So this is the thing. We have to get together. And all the problems have to get to agree. I fully agree with you. And I'm hoping that this will be a start. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly uh, if we don't, I mean, uh, we'll have more problems we have now. The other point, I heard uh, you had a gentleman there, I think it's Mike, regarding the seal, the seal industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, of course, being a... Uh, uh, in my lifetime, did a lot of hunting myself, and uh, one of the things we hunted for our own food, of course, was seal. And uh, I, you know, I, I loved the, the product, and I like I like eating seal. Uh, 
I certainly agree with what he said about uh, Minister Hutchins. She certainly seems to be a very uh, person that gets the job done. And maybe she can uh, uh, get uh, the seal industry, uh, you know, uh, started again or get, get something done to uh, sort of uh, cut down on our, our seal population because obviously, from my readings, it does... Uh, the seal does have some impact on on our our, our cod fishery, so uh, so I, I certainly feel that uh, Miss uh, Miss Hutchins is the person. Uh, I, I it's only recently I think I want to say it probably publicly, but uh, I always wonder who Miss Hutchins was. But I had the pleasure of working for her father many years ago when I was a young man. So I can see now where she gets her her, her certainly strong. She's very seems very there very strong uh, uh, will and, and gets the job done. So uh, having the pleasure of knowing her father, and hopefully I've got a chance to meet her someday, but she's doing an extra job for Newfoundland and federal government. Yeah, I, I don't know if this belongs on her plate as opposed to Minister Murray, where I really do think it belongs. I guess there's a, a sense of appeasement for the locals here because we would have a local minister as part of this as opposed to the fisheries minister, where I think the work really belongs. Not to say that Cody Hutchins can't contribute to it and any of the other members of parliament here on either side of the aisle, but uh, it feels like a little bit of appeasement and buck passing to me, but we'll see what becomes of it. Uh, Vic, I'm almost off to the news. Last word to okay. you. Okay, and I thank you for taking my call. You're doing a great job. Appreciate your time, Vic. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Patty. Bye now. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, and again, I can... Vic might agree that the conversation is due or overdue and plenty of people and I know it's going to be the case and I can accept it because that's just the way things go. Change is hard. Some of these conversations are extremely difficult and complex and complicated and emotional but let's have them anyway, right? Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Lloyd's in the queue to talk about Christopher Pratt, the late Christopher Pratt, Dead at the age of 86. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Lloyd, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. I just had a couple of points I want to run across you uh, for your opinion, mostly. Well, okay. Uh, the first one, Christopher Pett, a great artist. Uh, I was wondering in, in, in his uh, planning for the flag, did he consider, was it worthwhile considering like an SOS thing where you turn the flag bottom up? Why would he do that? For distress. Why would he do that? Well, you could be stranded somewhere and on the Ghana beach or something. You could use the SOS, I suppose, mark in the sand. But, I mean, if you was in the woods or something, you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to mark that in the sand. <laughs> but you turn the flag bottom up. Yeah, I'm, some flags are designed, you know, they're same both ways, like the like the Newfoundland flag. There's a bunch of flags out there that are the same, depending on which way. You know, different color might be on top when you turn it upside down. I do think it's unfortunate so many people have chosen to use the Canadian flag upside down, uh, but that's another conversation, I suppose. I don't know what he considered, but I do oh, know that bad. he designed uh, multiple editions of the flag before they settled on the one that we adopted. Is he a great artist? And like you say, I, I didn't know the significance or the importance of that type of thing, you know, like a like a distress call. Anyway, the other thing is. Um, but I suppose if you turned it upside down, you could indeed recognize the fact it was upside down. Because even just if it's the golden arrow pointed 
uh, or the different colors on different tops. I, let me see now. If I can picture the flag in my mind's eye, let me think about turning it upside down. No, I guess it'd just be upside down. You wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, fair enough. No, you wouldn't be able to Yeah, okay, good enough. And the other point I want to make is uh, the, the Isis Caribou. Now, uh, they're advertising you know, on the, what's happening in different communities, and they're saying that the 13th of October. Actually, it was sunk in, uh, it was sunk in uh, the 14th of October in '42. Okay. So I called CBSC about it, but he still didn't change it. So, you know. so the CBSC, like, uh, so where is it being spoken about with the wrong date? On VOCM, mostly on the radio station. So you complain so to the regulator? The communities that the things happen in, or in like the, and they use the caribou for the Port of Bass area. So you, you complain to the regulator? Yes, I, 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 well, I don't know if it was regulated, but I called the station anyway and asked them about it. Like, you know, and they said they would look into it. They understand what changed. They're still advertising as the 13th. Yeah, I think it left on its uh, trip to Sydney from Port of Basque, if I remember correctly, and this off the top of my head. They left on the 13th and eventually sank on the, or somewhere around 3.30 or something in the morning of the 14th? Around 7 in the morning or something, uh, the 14th of October. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just call points. I just want to get your opinion on what you thought about it. Well, my opinion on the flag is I have no idea why you didn't consider an upside-down version. I suppose you can always uh, dangle it vertically to give some sort of distress signal, even though I don't know if that even crosses his mind or if it's even important. But we need to be accurate. If the date's wrong, we should make sure they're right. That's my opinion on that. Thank you very much. Have a good day now. You too, Lloyd. Take care. Yeah, bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go. Line number four, we did indeed mention is World Oceans Day. The first time World Oceans Day was celebrated was in 1992 at Rio de Janeiro. Today is the day. Join us on line number four is Eleanor Manuel from the Manuel, pardon me, Eleanor from the Manuel's River Interpretation Center. I knew better. Hi, Eleanor. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How you doing? Not too bad. Thanks. How you doing? I'm great, and happy World Oceans Day to you. The very same to you. Thank you, thank you. Um, I just wanted to call in to let everyone know that we are celebrating World Oceans Day here at Manuel's River because we are a river center, of course, but we're very much attached to the ocean down at Worsley Beach there. And uh, we have been working on, for the last number of years, updating our trail system to connect uh, the trails all the way from upstream to downstream to that beach. So we've been fundraising for many years, as you know, to, to make that happen. And we started a couple of years ago celebrating a whole week-long uh, kind of a, a series of events because we have not only World Oceans Day today, but we also have International Trails Day uh, in the beginning of June, and we have uh, World Environment Day on the 5th day of June as well. So we've been calling what we've been doing in the first week of June for the last number of years, Trails to Oceans Week, in the hopes that we'll finish connecting our trails. And we're doing several special events Um We've got uh, some of our interpreters today. We're off-site to do some school programs uh, at Villanova in partnership with the Fluvarium and a gentleman named John Butler and some of the other uh, local municipalities. Um, They're calling what they're doing today and tomorrow the watershed a Heroes Climate Action Day. So they've built like a, a what they're calling a power tower that has all kinds of information about sustainable energy and they're doing all kinds of outdoor events today. They've got um, our group came in as a special guest to learn about pollinators and edible plants and we're going to do the same uh, program tomorrow with a school out in Harbor Grace called St. Francis. 
So that's kind of exciting. And we have another off-site uh, school program tomorrow actually happening at the beach uh, with a school called PwC from St. John's. And they are going to be doing some coastal ecosystems monitoring. So they're going to be actually participating in citizen science to collect data that they can then report to DFO about what they find on the beach tomorrow. All very cool. So how close are you to completing the, the entire trail from trailhead to the ocean? I think is how you described it. Well, we have uh, our, a section of the upstream trail nearest to the center is finished, and they had hopes to, um, in 2020, they, they opened the section uh, downstream as far as the beach uh, on the east side of the river, and we had hopes then to switch back upstream this year and to work all the way upstream as far as a little spot called the canyon. Uh, but we were experiencing some setbacks this winter with the strange weather that we've been having with the, you know, the, the flooding and uh, that we received from all that like rain and snow and rain and snow back and forth and the ground just being just super saturated and too frozen to accept all the water. So we did uh, have a lot of washouts in the trail. So we have been fundraising now this winter to try and uh, repair some of the damages and it looks like they're getting close to, to finishing the repairs on the side that we sort of already had just finished. But we will also eventually when we finish the canyon section upstream want to switch back downstream and finish uh, the section that runs along the west side of the river so uh, we still got a long ways to go and if people want to help out they're more than welcome to join us we're uh, we have an event tonight called wild wednesday people can come and forage for edible plants along the trails and then come back with the, what they forage to uh, make some cocktails um Tomorrow we have a free movie that we're offering uh, for World Oceans Day celebrations, uh, and it's about oceans. It's called The Wonders of the Sea, so that's at 7 o'clock tomorrow evening. If anyone wants to join us for that, they can go to the website for more info, which is manualsriver.ca, and we will have free exhibit admittance on Saturday this week, July, uh, June 11th, so if anyone would like to come for that, they're more than welcome to check us out, especially if you've never been here before, if you don't know what we're up to. And we do have a giant floor map of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, that we will be offering to the public for free every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4.30. That's as part of the, the Newfoundland uh, Tourism Come Home Year uh, celebrations as well. So that's every Monday from May now till October. So there's lots of stuff to do here. To wait Sounds like it. You come visit us. You are helping us celebrate the environment, helping us to work on conservation and education and, and recreation, all the things that we love to do most. And one other way, if you are physically not able to, to come to the center to visit or come to the trails to come and help out is uh, we're running our annual bobber race again this year. So if you would like to buy a, a ticket on a 50-50 draw, you can go to manualsriver.ca again and find out information there, or you can go straight to bobberrace5050.com and you buy your tickets there. You can buy one ticket uh, for $25, or you can buy three tickets for $60. You can buy five tickets for $75, or you can buy 10 tickets for $100. And the more people buy tickets, the more that drives the jackpot up 
and the bigger the prize will be when we draw. We do have an early bird draw uh, happening on July 22nd, and the date for the early bird draw, if you want to be included in that one, uh, the deadline is July 12th. And the early bird prize is your choice of either $5,000 or a mini manual Sun Valley greenhouse that is valued at over $7,000. And then, of course, the big draw uh, for the, the main cash prize will happen uh, in September. So There's a lot to that. A lot of details, a lot of stuff going on. I wish you good luck with it, Eleanor. Thanks for your time this morning. Yes, I know I threw a lot of information at you, Patty, but if anyone is not sure or can't remember, just head to our website, manualsriver.ca, and or our Facebook or our Twitter and all the social media stuff, and lots of info will be there for you. Or give us a call at 834-2099. And we'd love to hear from everyone. And we thank you so much, Patty, for having us on, and we hope you enjoy your rest of your World Oceans Day. <laughs> the very same to you. Thanks, Eleanor. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. It's Eleanor from the Manual Rivers Interpretation Center. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a call there to talk about a mix-up in the booster. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one then. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing today, Patty? Top shelf today. How are you doing? Good, buddy. Good. Listen, I wanted to just throw it out there. I just heard the thing there about drivers in Newfoundland and stuff like that. And I must say, on the most, uh, Newfoundland drivers are the worst in Canada. Certainly can be sometimes. That's for sure. Um, like the the they nobody signals to go into another lane. They travel like you're traveling on the highway, and you can't see their headlights are that close up your rear end. And uh, it's just really frustrating. And then they wonder why there's I don't call them accidents because it's not an accident because it can be pre- prevented. Yeah, it's a collision. Far too often we refer to those things as accidents, but I think you're right. When something can be avoided just by some reasonable behavior behind the wheel, it's not an accident, it's a collision. Yeah, that's right. And I just I just wanted to throw it out there. You know, I'm not going to take a whole lot of your time with it. But uh, like I said, I've traveled all across this country, you know, in all sorts of weather and everything like that, and touch wood, um, I've never had an accident before in my life or a collision. I've never had one before. And that's just because you drive to your own conditions. you, you got to keep safe driving. You know, signaling is a big thing. Nobody signals around here. They just go where they want to go. Uh, yeah, I've had an accident. I've had a couple. And uh, uh, to a man, to a woman, they were both my fault. Once I was coming out, I'll leave the road out of it, but... Uh, from the parents' uh, uh, cabin, and it was a blind turn, and what am I doing as opposed to looking around the blind turn? I'm trying to tune in the Expos game on the radio. Come around the blind turn, there's someone parked on the wrong side of the road, bang, my fault. Yep. You know, and 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 around here, especially when you get to, you know, I'm out in CBS there, and there's a lot of blind hills out there, and people come screaming around these corners, like the speed limit's 50, and they're doing, you know, 80 or 90, just screaming around these corners. And I live on a blind hill, so I'm, you know, extra, extra, extra cautious when I'm coming out. Yeah, I think you know, some people who normally would be quite reasonable and level-headed and cautious, something happens to some folks when they get behind the wheel. I just don't know what it is. You know, aggressive driving is everywhere you look. And I'll, I'll say this again, which I've said repeatedly. In this city in particular, you're not getting anywhere in a hurry. You're just ending up at the red light seconds before me. That's it. That's all you're accomplishing. You're not getting through yeah. an additional light. You're not going to beat me across town because you're gone mad in between bobbing in and out of lanes and and running yellows and reds it just doesn't work so i just don't know why that's the way people are especially then the exact same time 
they're going to complain about the price of gas, but they got the loud pedal pushed as hard as they possibly can, <laughs> worried about having yeah. to go to the garage to get their brakes replaced. You're going to do yours before I do mine because you're doing that fits and starts all out. It's just, I don't know, I don't even know what to say. But like in my neighborhood, I live very close to a neighborhood school. The problem is the road that the school is on is so wide, it looks like a racetrack. And so even folks who would, they know their lives would be ruined if they absolutely hit a child or killed a child. But yet that bloody thing is all out. It's the Indy 500 on that street all the time. Yeah, I hear you. And like that accident uh, yesterday on the Peacekeeper Way, I can almost guarantee because I travel that highway every day. And I guarantee you, somebody come going down that hill, and they do this, they'll, they'll speed up, and then all of a sudden they start going down the hill, and they say, oh, my God, I'm doing 100, and they slam on their brakes. Instead of just coasting, you know, the police aren't going to give you a ticket for doing 100 in a 90. You know, and it's very unsafe the way these people just slam their brakes on because they think they're going too fast. Yeah, I mean, Peacekeeper's Way, Veterans Memorial, some of the notables, the really unfortunate, sad tragedies that we see reported far too often on those stretches of road. And people know it to be the truth, right? They know it's dangerous. They have, you know, here's what the option was, is that they expanded passing lanes, which didn't encourage anyone to slow down and encouraged people to speed up. So I'm always at a loss as to why, you know, we think that that's a good idea. Let's let's allow them to go faster. Look, I get it. It's frustrating if you're trying to get home to Harbor Grace and you're stuck behind a transport truck and they sluggishly uh, try to make it way up the hill. But if you sluggishly wait behind them, you got a better chance of getting home versus a passing lane in the blind hills and all the rest of it that makes it a dangerous stretch of road. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. Uh, anything else yeah, you want to say, no, Rob? That was, no, that, that's about it, my buddy. I just, uh, I've got a myriad of stuff I'd like to talk to you about. We just don't have the time to do it. So. Well, you're welcome to bring something up, uh, something else up if you like. Go right ahead. No, not right now, buddy. I got. Uh, I'm working, so I'm sort of ducked out of work here. <laughs> so, I won't tell if you don't. All right, then, my buddy. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. All right. Bye, bye. Uh, let's keep going. Now we get to the COVID mix-up call on four on line four. Caller, you're on the air. Good. Good day, Mr. Taylor. Good day to you. I'll try to explain the best I can. Okay. On, on May the twentieth, I booked appointment for my second booster. Okay. And I gave all the necessary information, plus my phone number. And, on the, and I had an appointment for the 31st of May, so something came up on the 30th. So I was good enough to call this place, uh, say I can't make it. So that's okay. I'll book it at a later date. I done it. And uh, a couple of days after that, I said, I'll book now through uh, Eastern Health. So you don't mind me mentioning Eastern Health. So he's booked, he booked online through Eastern Health for June the 8th. Uh, a week ago, so I initially drew drove <coughs> drove 35 uh, 35 miles to the place where I supposed to get my needle today, and I had to drive actually 35 miles back, which it cost me twenty two dollars. So I was the first person there on the, to get my needle. I walks in, sits down, gives me date of birth, like I gave Eastern Health, and before it got confirmed, and it's sorry can't give you a needle. I said, well, I'm sorry. I said, I was confirmed for appointment. I said, on the 30th of May, and I was confirmed for the 8th of June to Eastern Health. I gave all the necessary information, my date of birth, my MCP number and everything. You're confirmed for the go there at this place in Grand Bank. And no, can't give it. I said, why? Because you're not 70 years of age. 
and what a mix-up. That should have been told to me up in front. When he had all the necessary information, my date of birth, um, MCP number net, and uh, and I went, uh, like I say, I drove, it cost me $22. I'm really frustrated. And I sat down in the chair to get me kneel. No, can't give me. You know, apparently that's been overlooked in some corners. I guess they display a certain level of flexibility, but the same story has come to me repeatedly. If at the initial point of contact, you give the information, the person taking it knows full well whether or not you're eligible, or at least they should know. And so all they have to say is, before you spend $22, I'm sorry, sir, you'll have to wait until X date when you turn 70 or whatever we're talking about. So don't bother. But I don't know why they don't do that. I just don't get it. No, well, like I say, I could I could have gotten... In my community, I, I could have walked in, in six minutes. Right. But Right, uh, on the 30th. But I was good enough to, to rebook it to Eastern Health to all the necessary information that's required. And I got up this morning to go. Like I say, it cost me $22 for the price of gas today, $11 a gallon. And, and I couldn't get meal. Yeah, we have to be able to avoid these things. This is where a bit of common sense and a bit of understanding that, you know, whether or not someone's worried about getting it or anxious about getting it or having to drive to get it, let's make sure when we take bookings, the person yeah. who booked it will absolutely get what they thought they were going to get that day as opposed to driving all that way to just find out, sorry, not your day today. I don't know why that happens. And I was the first person there, and, and I was glad to go and get it, but... Oh man, it, it, it really frustrated me. That's why I wanted to call in, voice my opinion. You know, probably there's more people there waiting to get that shot when he goes sits down in the chair. Sorry, you're not seven years of age. Yeah, now I suppose some of, us, some of us can make sure we know what we're getting ourselves into before we book it, but it shouldn't be up to me. Like, if I think that one of my buddies told me, well, I went to the pharmacy and I got the shot, even though I'm uh, three months short of my 70th birthday, then all of a sudden you think, well, I'm able to do it. And I don't know if they got it at the pharmacy. I'm just throwing that out there. No, but no. for the folks taking the bookings, just make sure the person you're speaking to is actually eligible before you book their appointment. That's all. Let's just make it as simple as that. And one question said, well, you got to be 20 weeks. And, and I fell into that category. I was 22 weeks. Yeah, the intervals, I think the same thing goes, whether it be your age and or the interval between your last shot. Yeah, they know those things too. So I don't know if they have the records in front of them, but you can certainly tell them, you know, maybe that's a question you should ask. When did you get your last booster? And if they tell you that, well, you need to wait another two weeks, okay, then, of course, it's also spared you the drive. But I initially told them up front that, that, I, that I was in my 22nd week. Yeah, there you go. And uh, your, your, your last caller, uh, if you're listening, oh, buddy, we do have bad drivers in Newfoundland. They don't know where to turn left or go straight at the lights. I'm up there the other day, a fella in the left-hand lane, and I going straight through and cut me right off. Took a left-hand turn in a straight lane. My favorite is a couple of things. Getting in the right-hand lane to beat me to the next light. Right? When they know full well they're not going to turn right up Portugal Cove Road. And or this is the best one. You put on your indicator a split second before you turn into the parking lot. You stop halfway in to look for a parking spot. <laughs> like drive into the parking lot and then find a spot. I don't know, man. Anyway. It's really disappointing and really disgusting for me today. So I'll try to keep on having a, having a good day after this. Well, hopefully that uh, helps you out. Uh, it might even be better than the booster. Yes, that could be, but I, I'm still going to get in anyway. Yeah, very well. I appreciate the call. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And it is time for the news. When we come back, uh, Keith's here to talk about the fact that, you know, we have had some discussions about what public transportation might look like outside of St. John's or Cornerbrook, and that includes Go Bus. Keith wants to talk about that and the service he thinks is required in Central, and then we're talking cost of living. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to call in this morning and uh, put it out there that the uh, Liberal government should get on with the uh, application process, open that up now for the uh, rebate program they announced earlier, and get these checks in the hands of people as soon as possible. I've uh, heard from a senior who contacted our office who currently has uh, over $2,500 worth of debt on oil payments from the past winter, and I'm sure this senior is not alone. And, uh, you know, people can't wait till the fall for this. This needs to happen now, and there's no reason why government can't uh, speed up this project and uh, process and get those checks out there. The minister, uh, before the House closed, talked about, uh, again, looking at and considering some other things in the fall which is fine but right now people need uh, need this money they need it it's based on last year's uh, costs and they and they need to get it out to them now what i also find interesting of course is that the liberals budgeted the price of brent crude around 86 dollars us a barrel and i think it's been averaging around 104 us per barrel and today i heard that the expectation is that brent crude will trade above 130 dollars a barrel for the next couple of months so there's a potential here for a significant uh, monies to come into the coffers of Newfoundland and Labrador as a result of that. The government is the beneficiary of that as long as production stays up. And, uh, you know, so it's not about increasing the debt or changing their position in their budget when it comes to the to the size of the deficit. It's about helping the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And if you're going to bring in significant additional revenues, find a way to put some of that back. So I would hope in the fall when we get an update, we would be able to say to the minister, if you've got additional revenues here as a result of this windfall, that it won't be about what you're considering. It'll be about what you're doing. But my main point today is, look, we need to get this application process open and we need checks in people's hands fair enough uh, the two key points on that is you know it's an annual fiscal year average and i know you know that they'll do a, a mid-year update on it maybe rejig the forecasted number but production is the big concern like last year when the price of oil was spiking all over the place we thought wow the windfall is going to be huge and it wasn't because production was way off and then when we trade in u.s dollars and the canadian dollars pretty soft you know historically speaking where we've, we've had some windfall oil related revenues so those two things kind of make it tricky you know it feels like there's a big mad rush of money coming in the door but it's probably not uh, a couple of specific questions you mentioned the rebate is that the home fuel home heating yeah, fuel that's rebate the, okay that's the rebate that they announced they've reduced the uh, eight cents a liter on the gas of course but they also announced that uh, significant up to five hundred dollars per person that they would be providing out it was going to be an application process yeah. uh, they haven't got that started uh, they talked about it happening in the fall but my concern is that people need to have access to whatever help they're going to get they need it now and government doesn't need to wait till the fall they've already committed this funding to this program so let's get it out the door sooner than later let's just say again because all we can do is talk in hypotheticals because we don't have a firm idea of what's coming in the door gas tax carbon tax oil royalties equity stake any of those things so let's just 
say there is more money coming in than the government thought was coming in. Do what with it? Because that's the trick. And from where I sit, we don't necessarily have a problem with how much money can be spent. We have a problem with how we distribute the money. So if you had your druthers and you were sitting in the seat of government, any additional monies, especially regarding the oil, do what with it? Well, again, Patty, I think it comes down to exactly that point, understanding exactly how much additional revenue have you, have we received. Are we, con- are we going to continue to meet our targets that we set in our budget when we, when we set the budget out? So that's keep to our targets that we set, and, and, and I think that's quite possible. But again, re- realizing that a lot of this money that we will receive will be one-time money because you can't continue the budget for something because, as you said, the price of oil will fluctuate, go up and down. So we know how much we have. We will know have a, a good estimate of what we've actually received to date, and then we can look at that. And how do we distribute that? I would suggest that targeting it in home heating rebate programs, like we've done in the past, in the fall, would be the best option to look at, so that you're targeting those who are are most vulnerable, most in need, and and those were quite successful. And so, you know, again, the fact that you have a limited amount of money and, and how you target it to the, to the most vulnerable, to the most needy, that's how you should be looking at this. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I guess the government will tell you, well, that was part of the, the plan and the couple of hundred million dollars-ish that were part of cost of living mitigation measures. Yeah, but it didn't include a whole lot of people. You know, so the seniors that qualify for the seniors' benefit, which I think the number is about 50,000 seniors in the province, and then folks receive an income supplement, whether it be a Metro bus pass or a one-time increase and those types of things. When you annualize them, it still doesn't add up to a lot of money. And I do acknowledge that we have to borrow whatever we spend here to help folks out. But the question will then remain, who's in a better position to weather a bit of a financial storm? Me or the government? Yeah. So, look, I get it. I'll be lectured now by uh, liberal supporters that tell me, well, we don't have any money. No, we don't have any money, but there's individuals that don't have any money, and the repercussions for individuals and families struggling is mightily different than government struggling. It just is. So we've got to find a way to have more information on the table so that we can realistically say they've done enough, they haven't done enough, where they can focus, where they shouldn't focus, because we're just kind of throwing darts uh, in, in the bl- at blind darts here now, because I don't know but that's exactly why it comes down the liberals like to talk about balance but part of that balance has to be the people in newfoundland and labrador we all understand we have a massive debt load and the ultimate goal is to continue to pay down that debt and reduce our annual deficits but you've already set a budget and a target for that so you can keep to that but when you're the beneficiary of additional revenues you know it's a, it's amazing because i think for the first time in in a province in a long time a finance minister brought down a budget and six weeks later had to make an adjustment to it. And and I give the credit to that to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador who called your show and, and, and you took on that fight and the PC opposition, we've been at it for seven months, and all of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador who contacted our offices and we were able to bring their stories and their messages to the House of Assembly because we did make a difference. We did at least get government to acknowledge that the plan they put in their budget was just not enough. And with all due respect, targeting the purchase of electric vehicles has nothing to do with the cost of living. No, well, I mean, maybe if you're in one already, it can. But, of course, 
that's talking about a very small segment of society that's actually looking at an electric vehicle at this moment. I know some people are, and fair enough, they can do whatever they like. Uh, for me, and I got this person telling me, it's all virtual signaling. No, if I get into a hybrid or electric vehicle, I'm going to try to save money. I mean, I might as well be honest about it. For me, it would be about saving some cash. So with the price of gas in particular, look, they have one mechanism they can adjust, and that is the provincial tax. I'm not really sure exactly what the backstop negotiations sounded like or actually meant with the federal government. But now there's thought, well, we need to get the PUB out of it. But then you get the PUB out of it, then what? Is it go back to the George Saunders model? Maybe. Because one thing we do not need and we absolutely should not accept is politicians being involved in setting the prices of anything, including gas. Couldn't agree with you more on that one. But it's also interesting. I think one of the frustrations for people, too, is, the, is this a bit about that five cents a liter that was added uh, by the pub when it came, when the Come By Chance oil refinery first closed. And, and that continues to be there. And that's a sense of frustration for a lot of people. And that's added to the base price. So that's not even included in yeah. the taxes that, that are that are on the cost of, of gas right now. And that continues to be a frustration. But again, you know, it's, it's the whole concept here is that, you know, you're elected to serve the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Balancing the budget and controlling the deficit is an important part, but it's also very important to ensure that the people of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador can afford to stay here can afford to stay in their homes, can afford, you know, and government has a responsibility to find a way to help in these unusual circumstances. I mean, we'd all feel great if the price of gas or oil went down significantly. It would be a relief to all of us at the pumps or or maybe in heating our homes, but, you know, that's not going to happen in the immediate future. And while government is a beneficiary of that, then it's finding a way to say, how do we how do we manage that? How do we help the people in Newfoundland and Labrador? And I think that is the thing that has to happen. And, you know, we've had successful uh, programs in the past. So, you know, it's time to uh, potentially come this fall, look at that and see what we can do. But right now, you, we've got to get this re- rebates that were promised to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador in their hands. And need to wait till the fall. Can we get politicians of all stripes to kind of understand what cost of living means versus what inflation means and to talk about corporate profits as opposed to simple reliance on inflation as if it's one person's fault because we are seeing corporate corporate profits at a 70-year high and yet they're being completely ignored because the political bantering is much easier on the fundamentals of the catch-all of cost of living and inflation when in fact there's other things that are really putting the pressure on us and we're not doing anything about it and we're not even talking about it which i think is a, a political uh, shortcoming especially on the federal level like come on and so there's things to be discussed there tony you've had the last word this morning i appreciate your time thank you patty appreciate yours take care bye-bye okay bye-bye tony wake a pc member for stevenville port of port final break of the morning keith we appreciate your patience he wants to talk about a go bus type service in grant balls windsor welcome back let's go to line number three good morning keith you're on the air uh patty yes how are you couldn't be better how about you there's a long time uh, first time ever i called you now I got a little bit of a, a bit of a problem here. We got no wheelchair accessibility in Grand Falls for a wheelchair, like a wheelchair transit, like a bus or anything like that. What I'm talking about is I'd like to see a bus come to Grand Falls, uh, or somebody get a bus like Wheel Away, 
are not like Wheelerby, go bus in St. John's. Something that you can go right on in, be strapped on the floor, and that's all you got to worry about. So are there any, for instance, uh, wheelchair-accessible taxi cabs or anything? I don't know. I'm no, just asking no, the question. No, nothing like that, sir. We haven't got one. We haven't got nothing. Because I was uh, with the taxi driver, the, uh, I'm not going to mention nobody's name, but I was with the taxi driver the other day, and he refused to pick me up anymore because I, I was in wheelchair. No. Yeah, I don't know what the service will be. And I think some of the conversation about public transportation, hub-and-spoke type of approaches outside Cornerbrook and St. John's would include a conversation about uh, wheelchair-accessible transportation, what have you. But that's It's long overdue. People are just so quick to say, well, we can't do it. Well, why can't but we do Patty, it? Patty, I mean, my God, Patty. I mean, there's, there's people in Grand Falls. the seniors in Grand Falls. I mean, I got, I, I got a, a minor disability. You know, don't, don't stop me from doing everything. But I need, uh, right now, I need a wheelchair van. Because it's only, uh, for, not for me, but for the people that need the wheelchair van. And I'm one of the people that need the wheelchair van right now to get from point A to point B. So over in the name of the God, why have we got to wait so long? I went to I went to the Minister of Transportation, and, and he never got back to me. I went to my MAJ which is a PC man, and he never got back to me. So what do they all do? You know, what does all this pull on the back burner? The first thing the people say is, oh, it's all in the manager's office. Well, it's trying to get out of the manager's office and get something on the road so these people can have a life. I want a life too, you know. Have you talked to anybody on the municipal level? Because they can be a driving force in being an advocate on your no, behalf. because I never bothered with a bad country. No one to talk to. I phoned them. I phoned them time and time again. And I'm going to tell you something right now. That tax, taxi driver that took me around, I'll never take me around again because I felt really discriminated that day because I got no... no uh, no trouble to get around. I've been in Toronto. I've been in, uh, been in St. John's going around by myself. And I've never had one bit of problem to get from point A to point B. But this particular taxi driver, I was discriminated against. And I don't care what he says or what he don't say. He had no right to say nothing to me about my wheelchair. Well, what did he say? He said he wasn't going to pick me up anymore because I had a wheelchair. And I thought I didn't move quick enough to please him. And and I suppose he and I, he probably didn't like that. And he took my I got a, a new wheelchair, and I got a pillow in inside my wheelchair, and he took the pillow out. And I got in order to get my wheelchair folded, I had to take the pillow out. And he took the wheel, he took the pillow and just over in that over in the car at me. And he, and I called him the next day to. And he's, he refused to pick me up because I had a wheelchair. Now, I know I'm not that fast getting around, but still, no, Paddy, I can get from point A to point B. Right. And so so now what? If you don't have access to that cab and there's no other accessible wheelchair-accessible transportation, now you're just stuck? Yeah, I'm just stuck. Now, that's, that's good and proper. And there's a lot of people out there like me, too, because we did have a wheelchair van. And I took advantage of it. But now the wheelchair van is down. His transportation needs to be fixed. 
and he can I thought probably he don't want it to get fixed, I guess. I probably he don't want to pay the money. The van is twelve years old, but still and all, that shouldn't make any difference. No, sure. I mean, if it's an option that can accommodate, and it's not just you. You're not the only person in the area that's in a wheelchair. No, no, so, that's right. Yeah. I'm not the only person in the area. So for God's sake, can somebody uh, tell me what what next route I can go? Because I want I want to go from point A to point B. Paddy is always on the go up to the last few months. Up to the last month or so. Well, I hope they figure it out because it's always a shame when we hear these types of calls. Uh, I appreciate your time, Keith. Uh, keep me in the loop if you make any progress. I wonder would you be able to keep bringing up on open line tomorrow morning and get people to call in and get to, to get this started because I want to get I want to get out, Patty. I want to get from point A to point B. Yes, sir. I'm used to going to church every Sunday. And I can't now. I can't even go to church now. Well, I will keep it up for you, Keith. No problem there. Yes, okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're all. You're always welcome. Stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. All bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to line four. Monica, you're on the air. Yes, okay. I, I was calling you yesterday morning because the lady you were talking with, you're, you're, you're an angel out of heaven. That's what I wanted to tell you. You've been so good so, to... to to old people, I mean seniors, you know, you help them in every way you can, trying to help them out, you know, I'm a senior myself, 84, and I wouldn't miss your program for the world. Well, I'm glad you like the show and um, for tuning in. We help I, when we can. We can't help everyone as much as we try, but we see yeah, what we can do. I know. And did that lady find a cat? Because I know I got a cat here. 11 years old, and I wouldn't want to lose it for the world. I don't know. We made a call and didn't pick up. So actually, you know what? That's interesting because someone else asked me that too. So that was the Siamese Pandora. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I'll give her a shout. And if you ever come out to Burgess, drop, drop in. I live up my two churches. I'll do exactly that, Mom. And I'll have a loaf of br- a raisin bread for you and more, something else. Put molasses in it? Yeah. There you go. I baked 27 last week, and I gives it away to old people. Well, I would be more than happy to have a slice and a chat with you, Monica. I really appreciate this this morning. You're such a, you're such a, an angel. That's all I can call you. Okay. Thank you, Monica. I appreciate it. Bye bye. Bye bye. There we go. All right. Uh, good show. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.